was actually Dr. King's last words requesting that song um, just before he died. His favorite version, Mahalia Jackson uh, was the one who sung it best for Dr. King. I kind of like Suja Nawan though, huh? <laughs> Pretty good. So what I'm saying is that even superheroes get fried. If you were here last week, you caught that. And we learned from Damar Hamlin, even superheroes get fried. We're also learning from a prophet who lived in the ninth century BC in a town called Gilead, whose name was Elijah, that even superheroes get fried. And what we saw last week is that when we get fried, the first step is to get to safety, get, get yourself safe. So important. And I want to share again the numbers that I shared with you last week, because in case you weren't there, I want to ask you to take a picture of the screen here. Have these numbers in your phone for yourself or for somebody else. Um, the numbers are the suicide crisis lifeline. You can text or call 988. It's kind of like 911. Good number to have handy, 988. And then the other one is domestic violence hotline. You can call 1-800-799-SAFE, SAFE, or text 88788. Keep those handy. Because that's the first step is just getting yourself safe, helping somebody else get safe. And for many of us, what that means is drawing good boundaries in our life. We talked about that last week. If you didn't catch it, go back and learn a little bit about drawing good boundaries in our lives. I wonder uh, if you came up with any good boundaries, if, if you worked on that assignment last week and, and identified a new boundary in your life. I'm seeing some head shake. I've heard some of you say, yeah, I, I'm, try, I'm working on some new boundaries in my life. So that's good. Well, today what we want to talk about is our bodies. Uh, because when we're fried, we also need to get rest for our bodies, this stuff. Uh, okay, so let's pick up where we left off. Uh, at the Bible, we had Elijah underneath a solitary broom tree. He was exhausted, heartbroken. Uh, he had resigned his commission as a prophet. He's despairing even of life, okay? So put yourself under the broom tree. Let's pull out a Bible and turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. Verses 5 through 8, it's on page 284 of the Pew Bible. I'd love for everybody to navigate over to this text. And if you're able, let's stand and let's read God's word aloud together as an act of worship. Also, when you read aloud, it puts it in a different part of your brain. So you're learning the text better uh, by reading aloud. And when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, get up and eat. He looked and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat. <clears throat> Otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. I love the bedside manner here. Don't you just love the bedside manner? Uh, look, look what's happening. Here is the God who spoke the worlds into existence. Here is the the Lord whose voice breaks the 
cedars of Lebanon. Here's the word of the Lord that so often comes to the prophet Elijah, not speaking but two words, up, eat. This is the Lord not giving the word of the Lord but the bread of the Lord now in Elijah's distress. The Lord through this angel has nothing to say about his heart, nothing to say about his mind. Uh, But what he does is he touches his body. Sleep, warm food, drink. Repeat, sleep, warm food, drink. Get up and eat. And then look again at verse five. With surprise, the narrator tells us, look, or behold, an angel touched him. Physical touch on his body. I have a friend who says, men go to the barber, not because their hair is long, but because they yearn for touch in their lives. Guys, we're we're not willing to admit that, but it might be true. Touch. God touches Elijah twice. In fact, the language of verse five has a kind of a continuous aspect as if to say an angel was touching Elijah, holding him. I mean, this is a tender picture. The Lord comes to the head of the prophet in his despair, doing a little baking for him, a little pandemic baking for him. Let's see how this works, right? It's like a little cake baked on hot stones and then a physical touch, his body. Not Elijah, you failed. Not Elijah, this is your problem. Not Elijah, pull it together. Not Elijah, you're good, don't worry about it. No words at all, but touch. Now, from this touch, I I draw three implications. And the first is this. You can't neglect your body and heal your soul. You cannot neglect your body and heal your soul. See, see, why, why, why would the angel touch him and twice? Isn't the issue emotional? Isn't it spiritual? We read in verse three about fear. We read in verse four, the suicidal depression. We read in verse three, he's quitting his mandate as a prophet. That sounds spiritual. As soon as he leaves Beersheba, he's out of the promised land. Man, shouldn't we be talking about heart and spirit here? No, it's the body. The angel touches. Bread, water, rest. Simple stuff. Apparently, I draw from this, mental and emotional healing begins with the body, the physical body. Now, that sounds too simple or somehow surprising. I would suggest to you today the reason we think that way is because you and I are the beneficiaries of two great intellectual traditions, the Greek tradition and the Hebrew tradition. And they have different opinions with respect to the body. So if you just imagine the aspects of human personality as different slices in a pie, the Greek tradition emphasizes the spiritual. Okay, so in the Greek tradition, the spiritual side of your life is the big piece. I mean, there are other pieces, emotional, social, physical, intellectual, um, and and physical, but spiritual is huge for the Greeks. In, In fact, when you're thinking Greek, you're thinking your body is a problem to be overcome. For Plato, the body was, quote, a prison in which everything good was held captive. For the Greeks, matter doesn't matter so much. What matters is the spiritual, the invisible logic from which we get our word logos. 
And, and I want to say that we're the beneficiaries of this tradition. We don't even have to know about Plato or Greek philosophy to experience this in our lives. So here in America, we tend to think of ourselves as in conflict with our bodies. Don't we? We have this ideal sense that the culture is continuously holding up to us. This is what you should look like if you're worthy in our culture. And we, we spend enormous amounts of time and energy and money to try to re-engineer our bodies to match up with that ideal. I mean, it's exhausting, this process, but that's what we're doing. And by the way, it's not just in our culture, it's in our churches as well. Christians oftentimes tend to suspect anything except the spiritual world, including our emotional selves, including our physical selves, as we're talking about here. The problem with that is, when you think that way, you're reducing the wonderful fullness of life to the thinnest possible experience. If you think this is all life, if, only, if God only cares about your soul and the hereafter, you're radically reducing not only your experience of life, but also the gospel itself down to something much less than it really is. Since so the Greek tradition, the Hebrew tradition by contrast emphasizes wholeness. So if we think of our pie chart with the Hebrew tradition, actually all the slices would be more or less the same size. Each of these different aspects in balance with one another because in the Hebrew tradition, the body is not a problem to overcome. It's a gift to be received. It's a gift. Matter does matter. We get this at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter one. God creates matter, the physical world, including bodies. And he says what? It is good. It's so good. It, this stuff is good. Matter matters because it comes from God. And ultimately, if you know the story, the logos of God, the word of God, will become flesh and blood itself. And I don't know what could be a higher commendation of the physical body than to know that the Lord himself would take one on. This is Hebrew thinking. See, when you think like a Hebrew, uh, you're one person. You could say, you are your body. That's who you are, your whole being, one emotional, social, physical, spiritual, intellectual, spiritual whole. You're not a soul with a body. You're an embodied soul. Your, your body doesn't, uh, you don't tell your body who you are, like in the Greek mindset. You actually let the body tell you who, who you are in the Hebrew mindset. It's a gift. So I want you just to be aware of the backdrop. Those two things influence our thinking. But if the Hebrew tradition is true, then it means our bodies must affect our mental lives, our emotional lives, even our spiritual lives. And this is, in fact, what we find. You know, you modern researchers tell us that our hormones affect our feelings, sunshine, stress levels, uh, our sleep, diet, exercise, illness, trauma, all of these things, nerve damage, all of these things impact the way we feel. So we have to ask ourselves, yeah, I'm feeling really blue. Well, how's your body? Researchers did a study recently in the NBA. I think this, this study is out of Illinois. They analyzed touched and team performance. And what they showed was basketball players who touch more, like the fist bump, the high five, the pat on the back, and, you know, all that, uh, they perform better individually and as teams by the end of the season. Why? Well, they're, they're hypothesizing that, that touch changes our experience of stress, of emotion, uh, of trust in relationship. When I was in college, I was a sophomore, I had an experience, freshman to sophomore year, of being totally fried. I went through a season, a dark season, and it, it came from 
my body. I was uh, rowing on the crew and I was sort of compulsively driving my body. My freshman page, my, my um, senior year uh, yearbook page said, my quote was, if it feels good, do it. If it doesn't, do it until it does. I mean, that gives a little window into my mindset as an oarsman. I'm just driving my body as a small, rowing heavyweight crew. And I can remember coming home and lying on my dorm room floor with tears coming down my cheeks because uh, I'd come back, I'd worked extra long day at the, at the boathouse, the dining room was closed, everybody was gone, and uh, I was just exhausted, not just physically, but emotionally as well. What I ended up doing was pushing my body to the limits and beyond, and five surgeries and a long rehab later, I finally had to quit the crew. It was a very painful time in my life. I did something at that time I'd never done before. I went to a, a church and asked a pastor a question. Do you think God might be speaking to me through my body? <laughs> and I, actually, I, th I, I think he was. So our bodies... Uh, matter. They're important. The angel of the Lord came a second time and touched Elijah. So if you're fried, when you're fried, care for your body. Ask yourself, have I been getting enough sleep? Am I eating well? Or could my eating be disordered? Am I getting good exercise? Or could my exercise be compulsive? Am I getting restorative sleep? Am I getting sunlight? Am I touching others in appropriate ways? Or am I isolating myself from others? I just had to throw that in for Mike. Yeah. <clears throat> and this is why um, when, we're, when feeling fried becomes actually debilitating, as it can, we should see our physician or a therapist. And we may resist this, but this is the path of wholeness. Uh, because we need to ask, we need, sometimes we need help. We need a specialist who can help us uh, with some of these questions. Have I been abusing my body? Is my body harboring some latent trauma? Is my body or brain chemistry out of whack a little bit? Might there be some medical, behavioral, or other lifestyle changes that I could use to support my physical health? And you know what? What would follow? Mental, emotional, spiritual your body is important. Caring for your body is foundational. This is what I'm saying for mental and emotional wholeness. You can't neglect your body and heal your soul. You just can't. And I know we try, but we can't. So there's a second implication here. Let's move on. Number two, mental and emotional wholeness require a practice of rest. Under the broom tree, Elijah asked the Lord to take his life. And the Lord says, no, I have another plan for you. And my plan for you is rest. God gives him rest. See, what we're learning is that we get fried because we start living out of our emptiness. Remember Parker Palmer? We live out of our nothingness. That cooks the circuits fast. And God's trying to shift us, this paradigm shift. How can we live out of the fullness and if people want to live out of the fullness that the Lord offers us, what we need is a practice of rest. We need to habituate ourselves to rest. And the Bible calls this practice Sabbath. Okay, kind of an old world word. World word. The Hebrew word, it comes from the Hebrew word for Sabbath. It's Shabbat. And it means very simply stop. 
Shabbat. Stop. Right there. Stop. Just rest. Be still. Cease striving. Stop. One day out of seven. This is, the Sabbath was meant to be a God-given boundary around the limitations of our humanity and physicality. One day in seven. Stop, the Lord says. Let me replenish your fullness. Let me pour into the emptiness of the week what you will need for the following week. By the way, you can't do this once after seven years of cooking your circuits. <laughs> this is an ongoing practice. The effect is cumulative. You'll have to do this for a while to know whether it actually will help you or not. It's a rhythm. Six days of work, one day of rest. Six days of work, one day of rest. Six days of work, one day of rest. That's a practice of rest we call the Sabbath. Did you know you are commanded to do this? <laughs> this is where I get to look down my nose and wag my finger. <laughs> this is like the gotcha moment in the sermon. And I got myself too, I have to say, because this is a hard one for hardworking 20th century, 21st century Americans, right? But it is number four in the 10 commandments. Here's what it says. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The spiritual language around a physical practice. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's number four. You now, you now know one of the four Ten Commandments. I bet you know some others too. But this one's important. Why? Well, actually the Bible tells us why. In two different places. We get two lists for the Ten Commandments. We get them in Exodus 20. If you want to go look them up, or you can turn right now. Exodus 20. And the other list, Moses repeats them in Deuteronomy 5. In each place he gives the why, he gives two different whys. I want, to, I want you to know both of them. In Exodus 20, the why is because you're made that way, human nature. And he goes back to Genesis chapter 1 and he says, you know, human beings are made in the image of God and God rests. So who are you to think that you don't need to rest? If you're in the image of God, you should do what God does and God rests. Remember we talked last week about the, we get fried when we try to transcend our limitations, the limitations of our humanity. Here are the implications. You might be trying to transcend the limitations not only of humanity but of divinity. If you just think you can charge through 24-7. Moses says, uh-uh-uh. You're made like a car is made for gas or electricity or whatever. Your body is made for one day out of seven of rest. We're not meant to rest from our work, but to work from our rest. Let it come out of the fullness. Now that's Exodus 20. In Deuteronomy 5, Moses emphasizes freedom. Have you ever thought about this? Well, if you look at Deuteronomy 5, you'll see Sabbath is meant to be a sign of your freedom. And he remembers that for Israel, that Israel was in slavery in Egypt and there was the Exodus and God rescued them from, from slavery and he's trying to change their whole hardwiring. And they need the Sabbath to do that because when they were in Egypt, imagine what it was like. They were slaves, which means somebody else tells you when to work. That's having no control over your work is what it means to be a slave. They say jump, you say how high, right? And that can happen any day of the week. So 24-7, you're on. You're working in Egypt. And that's for generations. That, that was the Hebrew experience. But now at Mount Sinai, I guess, we're going to change that. I'm going to give you a practice to change that. It's going to be a sign of freedom. And to those of you who think you're better and more of a person somehow because you're working harder and accomplishing more in your hard driving lifestyle, I want to suggest that you might be a slave. I mean, that's the implication. That when we blow through the Sabbath, we're actually enslaved to our work. We're enslaved to a culture of success. 
We're enslaved maybe to our parents' expectations. We're enslaved to some need for approval. We're enslaved to a materialistic culture. Any, any of these things. Moses, yeah, but when, when you can stop right in the middle of unfinished task for a day, because your work will never be finished. When you can stop like that, it's a sign of freedom on the deepest possible level, right? Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament scholar, he says both lists are interesting because the Sabbath gets the most attention. There's more ink in the Ten Commandments on the Sabbath than any of the other commandments. The fourth commandment, he writes, is the most difficult and most urgent of commandments in our society uh, today. Because, and here's his rationale. In a world that reduces people to commodities or that tries to reduce us to commodities, Sabbath is a subversive act of It's an act of resistance. It's a culture-changing act. That's why they say it's not so much that the Jews kept the Sabbath, but that the Sabbath kept the Jews, allowed them to resist assimilation into the cultures around them. So freedom, human nature. Sabbath will remind you that you're saved not by work, not by your works, but by the grace of God of your Savior and God, Jesus Christ. In that way, the Sabbath moves us right to the heart of the good news of Jesus. So this is a growing edge for me. Let me just share you a brief story for me. I'm trying to practice Sabbath. What I'm doing Saturdays, uh, from Friday night to Saturday night, I'm practicing Sabbath. And it means I uh, turn off my email, I put my phone on focus mode, uh, no work, uh, no more work on this sermon, so whatever you get, you're going to get. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just say no to that. Uh, trust the Lord with it, and you'll have to too, uh, right? And so, and, and, I, and I rest, and it means I sleep in, it means I ride a bike, it means I pray, it means I eat good food, I spend time with friends, neighbors, family, uh, I, I watch movies on, on Saturdays, read, whatever I, I do. That's restful to me. I do it on that day, and it's such a gift. Uh, here's the thing, though. It's changing my relationship to time, my body, and to my work. Several weeks ago, I, I, I kind of got activated, uh, a little bit upset about something at work, and I was emotional about it, and I had this sense of crisis. And unfortunately, it was happening during the, towards the end of the week, and there was uh, nothing I could do if I had to take Sabbath. So I said, oop, I'm going to take Sabbath. I woke up Saturday morning thinking, I wonder what's happening in my inbox. There's this crisis boiling somewhere. You know, if I could just take 15 minutes, a couple quick calls, a couple emails, we could probably get this all fixed and I'd feel better about my rest. I had this rationalization. But the Holy Spirit gave me strength. And I said, nope, I'm just going to not even touch it. You know what happened? Monday came around and the problem was still there. But my relationship to the problem was entirely different. I brought a non-anxious presence into that situation because I believed ultimately the Lord was in charge of it all. And that was so liberating for me and the other people around me. And it came out of a, a Sabbath practice. Marva Don tells a story about a, a wagon train on the Oregon Trail from St. Louis to Oregon. There's a devout group of Christians. They stopped one in seven days to observe the Sabbath on Sunday. But winter was coming and it was getting dangerous. And so at some point along the way, they said, hey, you know what? Maybe we should just keep rolling for seven days straight all the way through until we get to Oregon. And they didn't all agree on that. So they, they came to a, um, an agreement that they would split the group into two halves. And some would observe the Sabbath and some would just press on. Well, you can imagine which one got to Oregon sooner, 
right? It's the one that practiced Sabbath. And Marva Dawn, uh, she says, a great benefit of Sabbath keeping is that we learn to let God take care of us. Not by becoming passive and lazy, but in the freedom of giving up our feeble attempts to be God in our own lives. And I think that's really the issue. Give God a chance to care for us and to give up the feeble attempt to become God in our own lives. So may I ask you, what could Sabbath keeping look like for you? I'm not going to tell you exactly how it should work. I know many of you work on Sundays and have to. Police officers, uh, cooks, um, nurses. So, so what would it look like for you? It, I, what I know is it, it needs to be intentional. It, it's hard to do this and you've got to be intentional one day out of seven. So what would it look like uh, to take that time and set it apart for the Lord and for yourself? How would you shift your week around to make that possible? What would you say no to? On your Sabbath, what would you say yes to? This is the homework assignment this week. It's to take a Sabbath. Shoot, you got an extra day this week, perhaps, uh, Martin Luther King. You can do it on Monday if you can't do it today. Try, try taking advantage of that. My encouragement to you is to practice Sabbath consistently. So if you want to take the Sabbath test, give it four weeks in a row. Just take a month and, and be Sabbath curious you can do it with a friend, put it in your calendar, mark busy on those days. So if your boss asks you to do something, you can just say to her, oh, I'm sorry, I'm busy that day. Resting. You don't have to say that, right? Because you're always telling the truth. Um, try that. Four Sabbaths in a month. Give God a chance to take care of you and rest your body. What I'm saying here is that mental and emotional wholeness require a practice of rest. And then finally, let me give you one more implication for this, for this text. And it's this. It's ultimately the touch of Jesus that brings healing to our bodies. It's, it's ultimately the touch of Jesus that brings healing to our bodies. I say this because for those who read the New Testament, there's something eerily familiar about the words that the angel of the Lord says to Elijah when he comes to touch him. He says, get up and rest. How often do we hear Jesus himself say, get up? To a paralytic, get up and walk, and he walks. To the lifeless body of a little girl, get up, and she arises. To the corpse of a young man and a grieving mother at a funeral procession, Jesus says, get up, and the young man gets up. This would be the word that Jesus will use for his own resurrection. After three days, he says, I will rise again, I will get up. And he does. And this is the good news. See, it's ultimately the touch of Jesus that brings healing to our bodies. I say that for two reasons. Number one, he's the only one that can free us from the work we do beneath our work. Whatever you think your job is, what you're really doing is trying to achieve success, approval of others, right? This is the work that we're trying to do below the work. And it's with Jesus that we can hear God saying to us definitively, my grace embraces you. Complete acceptance. My love holds on to you. You're mine. My power sustains you through your work week. I've got this. He's the only one who can free us from the work beneath our work. The why. Secondly, he did with his body, uh, what he did with his body is what, what will ultimately heal ours. What he did with his will bring life to our bodies. 
Because in the great narrative arc of the gospel, the Son of God has touched our bodies. He took on a body. That's what we've been celebrating this last season, just like ours. He entered into our physical brokenness to bring physical healing. By the end, he was so depleted and exhausted by it all, they finally laid him in a tomb, dead in a cave. But on the third day, but on the third day, God the Father said to God the Son, get up. And he did. And that is the good news. So it's by the power of his touch that the followers of Jesus get up themselves. He is bread for the journey. Notice in verse 4, Elijah says, enough. Remember I told you last week that means too much. Well, in verse 7, we see the angel using that same word, I think intentionally. With this food, the, the, the uh, angel says, the journey will not be too much for you. And the implication of that is with Jesus, you and I will have enough on our journey as well. Because Jesus is the fullness of God and the emptiness of our body. He is strength for our weakness. He is rest for our exhaustion. He is the rising of God in the dying of our lives. So the Apostle Paul describes it just this way. When he says Jesus, he says in 2 Corinthians 4 to 10, we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be visible in our bodies. The dying and rising of Jesus, Paul says, is showing up in my body. The life of Jesus in my body. Think of that. In this text, he's very honest. I'm afflicted, I'm crushed, I'm forsaken, I'm struck down. He says, but I get up because I have resurrection life in my body. I have the touch of Jesus. How is that possible? Well, he says, by faith. We look not at what we can see, what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. Faith, he says. Which reminds me of two other famous touches. The woman who was bleeding for 12 years touched Jesus, remember? He said, who touched me? And then Thomas, the disciple, was struggling with his faith, wanted to put his hands in the scars of Jesus, the nail prints. To both, Jesus says, it's your faith that has made you well. It's your faith that has saved you. Which means that even if you and I could touch Jesus physically right now with our hands, we would still need faith. And it also means if we can't touch Jesus right now with our own fingers, uh, through faith we can be made well now. It's faith that matters. It's not can you touch him. The question is will you put your faith in him and let him touch you. So I want to invite you to Put your faith in Jesus today. If you haven't ever done that before, then please come to upc.org slash Jesus and interact with us and learn how you can do that and let Jesus touch and transform your life. You can come down front after the service and speak to our prayer team. They also will help you say yes to Jesus and experience the gift of God's grace and everlasting life as a follower of Jesus. Well, are you feeling fried? Uh, I, I know in many ways I'm feeling fried. And I know that many of us are. I know who we are. We struggle with anxiety. We struggle with depression of all kinds, postpartum depression, just heaviness of heart, chronic, acute depression, some of us. Bipolar disorder, disordered eating, addictions. So many things, we're burned out at work, we're afraid of the turn that the world seems to be taking, we're crushed by sorrow and grief, as Mike prayed earlier. 
And I just want you to know, here's the invitation of Jesus through Elijah. Come, put your hand in mine. Sleep, eat, rest. And then in my strength, my resurrection life, get up. With me, you will have enough. With me, you will have enough for the journey. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the mystery and beauty of this table around which you gather us uh, today. We don't really know how to understand it. But here through two sacraments, our baptism and the Lord's Supper, you have pledged yourself to us. You have marked us. You give us means of grace by which your healing can flow into our physical bodies. You want to touch us. You want to touch us even today. And so today we pray that you will set aside these elements, the bread and the cup, from ordinary uses to a sacred use. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, give us your peace. We pray in Christ's name, amen.